The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you. Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Kim, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So how about you start off by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. I'm Kim Ellsbach. I'm a professor of management at the Graduate School of Management at UC Davis. And I study perception, how people perceive each other, how we perceive our organizations, how we perceive our leaders, and how we can recover from damage to those perceptions. That's fantastic. And how'd you get into this? Um, I was always really interested in how people perceive each other because it didn't seem like it was always related to rational thinking. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we trust people that it seems odd that we should trust. And sometimes we distrust people that, that it seems odd. And so I was always interested in what happens inside our brains, inside our minds. What, what's going on in there that leads us to perceive people and uh, leaders in the ways that they do? Fantastic. That's great. And I'm I'm really excited about this episode because uh, like we were saying earlier offline, we, there's so much focus on how to build trust and how to build trust and build trust, but there's not enough focus on how to rebuild trust <laughs> when it's lost. So I'm I'm really excited about this episode. And just a brief outline for the the audience, what we're going to do is start off by talking about the three pillars of trustworthiness, and then we're going to move into how to recover from lapses in competence and how to recover from lapses in morality. So this is going to be a lot of fun. So how about you start us off by telling us about those three pillars of trustworthiness? Sure. So Roger Mayer is a, a psychologist and organizational theorist who's developed a model of trustworthiness that's based on three pillars. Those pillars are what we call benevolence, which is looking out for others. I got your back. Uh, integrity, sort of doing the right thing. And then competence, doing what you're supposed to do. So those are the three pillars of trustworthiness. And two of those pillars, benevolence and integrity, are often collapsed into a single construct called morality. So if we think of morality as sort of the, the doing the right thing aspect of trust and competence as doing what you're supposed to do or what you're required to do by your job, that's the other component of trustworthiness. Perfect. And so let's, let's talk about competence. Let's dig deeper into that. Because what I'm thinking here is that a lot of it is up to perception. So you might have somebody who is absolutely brilliant, but people don't recognize that level of competence. So how do you convey that to the other side? So competence is 
based on perceptions of both your acts and sometimes your certifications. So acts are, you know, do you do your job well? Um, Do you get outcomes that are expected? Are people happy with what you're doing? And then the certification part is, do you have the right education? Uh, Do you have the right training? Do you have the right experience? And who says you do? (laughs) Has that been certified by somebody? So if you're an accountant, of course, then that means you have a CPA. But even if you're not, have you been through the right education and training? Do you have a law degree? For example, if you're a politician, do you have a business degree if if you're a CEO? So those two parts of it sometimes um, together indicate whether or not you're competent. That's really interesting. And I think, let's say, from the con- from the perspective of a negotiation, let's say it's a situation where we've never met this person before. How can we demonstrate competence in a way that is not off-putting and arrogant? Yeah. Well, before the negotiation, you might indicate what your qualifications are and in a sort of passive way, providing the person with some background information about yourself and, and, you know, sort of not bragging, but just as a matter of course. The other thing that often indicates competence to others is how you talk. So if you're using the right words, the right lingo, if you're able to explain things to them in a way that shows that you understand. And sometimes using a lot of jargon is not the right thing. So if you're talking to somebody who understands the jargon, If you're talking to a lawyer and you're a lawyer, then you might use some legal jargon. But if you're talking to somebody who doesn't understand that jargon, sometimes using too many big words or lots of jargon is actually uh, can create the perception that you don't know what you're talking about. And in fact, you're trying to hide behind a lot of jargon. So you have to know your audience and speak in a way that makes it clear that you know what you're talking about given their level of expertise. I love that. And you see that all the time, especially in in the business world. People say, okay, well, I need to add some syllables to the things that I'm saying (laughs) to sound legit. But no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's really important, especially for younger generations too, because I think in the younger generations, there's this this feeling that, hey, this is who I am and it's your responsibility to accept me however I appear to you. But in reality, you have to be able to demonstrate the right parts of yourself at the right time to specific people. And if you're not learning how to speak their language, then it's it's not going to bode well for your perception of competence. Absolutely. Yeah, there's lots of examples. In fact, I've done some experimental studies where we had people posing as a financial advisor and giving uh, financial advice to a layperson. And the person who used a lot of jargon was perceived as less trustworthy than the person who used more common language in that example. And the reason was that they were perceived as trying to hide behind the jargon. If you really understood the complexities of this financial account or mechanism, you would be able to explain it to your grandmother in language that she understood. And if if you don't know what you're talking about, sometimes you use a lot of big, big words just to hide behind it. So in fact, we've we've shown that in some studies that that can hurt you. Yeah. And you know what's really interesting too? For me, uh, doing this podcast, that was something that I had to work on for myself because I had this assumption as, as to who was going to be the listener. And I, at the beginning, I was way off. <laughs> I was way off. And so one of the things that I was intentional about was 
trying to sound less like a lawyer because (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I need to pull this back a little bit. Saying Latin phrases is not communicating effectively. So yeah, I, I can definitely appreciate that. And you said also we have morality and morality as the other, the yeah. umbrella term for the other two. What were those other two again? The other two components are benevolence and integrity. And, and they're often combined into just a general sense of morality. Are gotcha. you, do you do the right thing? Do you have some sort of moral compass? And morality is, is different than competence. It really has to be shown over a long period of time. You can't just whip out your diploma and gain morality. <laughs> you have to show over time and in difficult situations often that you are able to do the right thing. So morality is often tested when it's hard to be moral, when there, there are a lot of reasons and pressures and temptations to act immorally, but you still do the right thing. Then you gain perceptions of being moral. So it takes consistency and time with the morality, yeah, right? So, absolutely. So Very it's good. earned. And so let's look at the other side. So let's say it's a situation where this is my first time meeting you and I want to build that trust. How can I demonstrate morality in a short period of time? Well, you might start off by just being very open about your values, your beliefs, that I think is is a good place to start. So you can tell the other person what your values are, what your beliefs are, what your mode of operation will be, and then also tell them what your expectations are in, in the interaction. So if we're doing a negotiation, you might start off by saying, you know, I will always tell you what my goal is. I will never pad my goal, ask for more than I want. Because I, I believe that we need to start off with uh, some trust and some honesty. And so you might start off by giving them some indication of, of your values and how you're likely to express those. Hey, everyone. I have an exciting announcement for you. As you know, here at the American Negotiation Institute, we believe that the best things in life lie on the other side of difficult conversations. In order to live the best versions of our lives, we need to negotiate to get what we deserve. But here's the secret. When it comes to effective negotiation and conflict resolution, knowing what to do is only half the battle. This is nothing without the confidence you need to execute. And that's where the Negotiate Anything online course comes into play. This isn't just a negotiation course. This is a confidence course. After you finish the course, you'll know exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to say it for maximum persuasion. And most importantly, you'll have the confidence that you need to take action when the time is right. In other words, you'll have the skills and confidence you need to get what you deserve at work or in your business. This will help you to become the leader and negotiator that you always dreamed you could be. We were supposed to start in early January, but unfortunately, the day I was planning on recording, I lost my voice, so I wasn't able to do that. So the new start date is February 17th. Check out the website to learn more, and there's also going to be a link in the description. And now, without further ado, let's get back to the episode. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. That's really interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like you're saying you're, we're, when we're talking about morality, we're not talking about morality in terms of a, like a religious type of uh, thing. We're talking about in terms of the, our hopes, aspirations, and the, the way that we navigate the world. Yeah, I think that values is really the word that, that hits home for most people. It's about what our guiding values are. And for some people, those values are very much tied up in religion. So they may say, you know, I follow Christian values as my moral compass, but it doesn't have to be. It can be much more agnostic than that and broader. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think if you if you do your research and you let's say, let's use that very example, agnostic with a and a Christian, let's say, ah, this sounds like a joke. An agnostic person and a Christian walk into a bar <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or walk into a negotiation. I think what's interesting is that if you strip down the to the general values, you can find things that you can agree upon. And I think about in terms of framing, when you're framing, you're kind of telling the storyline for the entire conversation and it's a powerful negotiation technique, and just a conversational technique in general. And what I tell the folks in my workshop is that if you're having trouble finding some common ground from where you can begin the negotiation, that just means you need to broaden the scope. And so, if, for example, if we're litigators, what you could simply say is, hey, you and I, we're, we're both attorneys, and our goal is to make the profession look good and try to get the best outcomes for our clients. We can at least agree on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great, great way to start is find some values that you hold in common. You know, in negotiation, find some interests where you overlap and in, in what you want. And that's a good place to start. Yeah. Definitely. For conveying that sense of morality. Perfect. Well, let's move on to recovering from lapses. And so the first one I wanted to talk about was recovering from lapses in competence. Can you tell us more about that one? Yeah. So it turns out that when we're viewing people's competence, there's a couple of things that we take into consideration. First, we consider the situation. So we believe that people who are competent can sometimes act or behave incompetently because of situational factors outside of their control. So if you're a, a very good tennis player, you can still hit a bad serve 
because the sun was in your eyes or a gust of wind came up or you were distracted by somebody in the crowd, you can act incompetently even if you're competent. So we are willing to consider those kinds of situational factors when we assess your competence. We also know that even if you're incompetent of your, you know, sort of honestly incompetent, you don't know what you're doing, that that's also a temporary trait, that people can get better, they can learn, and they can improve their competence. So even if it's not the fault of the situation, in fact, it's your fault, that doesn't mean you will always be incompetent. So those two things together make it easier for people to recover from lapses of incompetence. Say you make a decision for your organization and it's a strategic decision, a great one. Maybe you don't remember this, but New Coke. Back in (laughs) the 80s, they decided to get rid of Coca-Cola Classic and replace it with New Coke. This turned out to be a really bad decision. People started hoarding classic (laughs) Coca-Cola because they loved it. And it had nothing to do with the objective taste, but it had to do with sentimentality and people's relationship and memories with classic Coke. So this was a big mistake. And I remember at the time, Roberto Guzueta, who was the CEO of Coke, he came out and he said, we messed up. That was a bad decision. But they said, you know, what we did was we placed too much too much weight on these blind taste tests. And we thought people just cared about taste. And we didn't really understand that they cared about things like when they went to a ball game with their dad and had a Coke for the first time. And that's why they liked Coca-Cola Classic. So he was willing to say there were situational factors that were a play. You know, we were given advice from our marketing department based on blind taste tests. And that was, you know, we put too much weight on that. And also, we were ignorant. We didn't consider things like sentimentality. So in both cases, what he was saying is, we've learned, we've grown, we've changed. We're not the incompetent people we were (laughs) when we made that decision. And therefore, you can trust us to not make those kinds of decisions in the future. And they were able to recover from that quite quite easily. And of course, Coca-Cola Classic is still around. So that's a great case of recovering from incompetence where we were willing to say, okay, there were situational factors that were hindering you. Also, you're not, you can learn. You have the capacity to to learn and we believe that you have. And so we'll continue to trust you. That makes a lot of sense because if you're going to continue to work with somebody, everybody makes mistakes and that's going to happen. But I want to know that you learn from the mistake so that exact same mistake doesn't happen again. And that makes a lot of sense in your ability to feel comfortable relying on somebody. And I know there is some kind of line that at this point isn't clear to me. So I want to ask you about the, uh, the line when it comes to excuses, because we've all had that situation where for one reason or or another, the excuses that we heard from somebody else were off-putting. (laughs) So how can you make sure that you can retain your level of competence or the perception of competence by saying, okay, the mistake that I made was due to situational factors and I have since made those corrections and crossing that line into it's an annoying excuse. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that makes a difference is that you can say the fault was at least partially situational factor. So it wasn't completely, I'm not completely excused from this. I was hindered in making the best decision I could in part because 
of the situational factors. But part of the blame is also mine. And so not completely giving yourself an excuse. The other thing is, does the excuse harm another? So in order for me to blame the situation, does that mean I have to throw somebody else under the bus? So with the the new Coke fiasco, is it completely throwing the marketing department under the bus and saying, you know, they were incompetent. They didn't know what they were doing. They And I think what you can say is you you can include yourself in that. We made a mistake. It wasn't them. I'm separate from them. We together made this mistake so that you are, again, not not throwing somebody else under the bus. You're throwing yourself under the bus with them. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting. That's a, I think that's a really important distinction, though, because there has to be that responsibility. You have to take responsibility for what happened. And I think the other side would want to put that on you if you don't put it on yourself to a certain yeah. extent. In law, there's a concept called drawing the sting. So let's say we're in courts and we're in front of a judge and a jury. And before the other side says the awful things that your client did, you want to say it <laughs> about yeah. your client and say, listen, okay, this did happen, however, right? Yeah. And so I think that's a way of kind of calibrating the amount of damage you can take from the mistakes that you made. Yep. And I think it's especially important for leaders to take some of the blame because if you completely abdicate any responsibility, then that suggests that you weren't in charge. <laughs> and oh, wow. so for a leader, especially, it's important to to say, you know, yep, this is on me. I was working with with a certain mindset and a certain certain belief system. And of course, you know, my marketing department was in on this too, but the buck stops here. I, w- I was in charge and the and the final call was mine. And so, you know, I have to take responsibility, at least partially. Right. And you know what's really interesting about this is that I think this is liberating for a lot of people because I think there's an assumption that when we make a mistake like this, we say to ourselves, oh my gosh, I can't own this. Everybody's going to think I'm dumb forever, right? (laughs) They say, I can't come back from this. And so recognizing how you can, essentially, there's a formula for recovery from a mistake like this. I think that's liberating because you can just say, you can own up to what you did and you don't need to live in fear. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, the the name of one of my papers is why it's better to be incompetent than immoral. And it's always better to <laughs> to come, you know, come out and say, yep, I, I messed up. And but these are the things that I've done to learn from that, that will prevent me from messing up in that same way ever again. So if you continue to mess up in the same way over and over again, that might be harder to recover from. <laughs> right. But a single instance in a, in a tough situation is forgivable, and people are very ready to forgive you for that. Fantastic. This is great. And I think that's a perfect time to transition here to the other one, recovering from issues of morality. Yeah. So unlike competence, we don't believe morality or lapses of morality are affected by situational factors. So we, we, if you do something immoral, if you cheat, you lie, you commit fraud, we don't believe there are any situational factors that can excuse that. Uh, so coming up with excuses for immoral behavior are never believed or justified or, or are perceived as, as, as something that's should be considered. That's different than competence. We don't consider the situation with the lapses of morality. 
We also don't believe that it's a temporary state. So we, you know, what, whereas if you're incompetent today, you don't have to be incompetent tomorrow. We kind of do believe if you're immoral today, you're likely to be immoral tomorrow. It's a more permanent state. And that makes it very hard to recover from. So not only do you not have the ability to say that this was a tough situation, but you also can't just say, I'm learning or I've learned. You have to show that you are, in fact, a different person (laughs) altogether (laughs) than the person who committed the infraction or the violation. And you can only do that over time through consistent, repeated behaviors that show morality. Wow. That's, it makes a lot of sense. It definitely makes a lot of sense. And it's, I think that one (laughs) has a bit of a less hopeful prognosis there (laughs) if if you're in that position. So let's say you're in that position, you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar, and now you say, Kim, what should I do? So if you were going to make a a game plan for that person, uh, what would it be? I think, you know, the first thing to do is to, the same as if you lack competence, is to own the mistake. And then over time, you have to show that you are becoming a different person. So you have to say, you know, now understand why what I did was wrong. And I am taking steps to change my behavior so that I'm not that person ever again. If I am Martha Stewart, and I'm caught with insider trading, and I go to jail, I have to show that in fact, I understand what I did was wrong. And that I'm taking steps to become a different person. I'm, you know, I'm engaging in, you know, sometimes people engage in self-help. I'm going to therapy. I'm meeting with a counselor. I'm learning something about myself that led me to, to have committed that sort of infraction. And over time, I'm taking these steps to become a different person. But you're just going to have to watch me and become comfortable over time that I am, in fact, a a new person. And that takes some time. That makes sense. It definitely makes a lot of sense. And when it comes to this, let's say you're in a situation where you're trying to expedite the process (laughs) of rebuilding that trust. Are there any things that people can do in order to make that process go faster? Because I know you said engaging in self-help, owning up to it. Are there any other things? I think if you do some things that are very selfless, so getting into that benevolence part of of morality, that you're doing things for the well-being of others rather than your own well-being, that can go a long way to showing that that you're, in, in fact, a new person. So if you, if, I remember the case of Michael Vick and in having the the dog fighting charges. And he started to, in fact, donate to to animal shelters and to sort of promote the good work that some of these shelters were doing to recover, to help his dogs recover. If you can get involved in some activities that show that you're doing things completely for the welfare of others. I think, and especially those who were harmed, sort of gets to, from a legal standpoint, the sense of restorative justice. I'm not just reforming myself, but I'm helping those who I may have harmed. I think those kinds of public acts can go a long ways to showing you're a different person. 
now how do you let's let's introduce another line here how do you do this while seeming genuine to the observers yeah and then i mean again it, there are going to be people uh, who are immediately discounting what you're doing as just a marketing ploy to to get your trustworthiness back. And I think that, it, again, it's just you just have to it takes time. It takes time and consistency and and a commitment to show I'm doing this repeatedly. It's not just a PR stunt, even after maybe people started trusting me again. I continue to do this good work. I continue to show that I'm still involved and that this is a lifelong change that I've made to doing good, not just a short-term thing that that will recover my trust. Right. And uh, I think this this is a great example of why it's so important to do everything above board in the business world and in negotiations. In my in my courses, uh, the workshops that I do in different parts of the country, I always say, "Listen, truthfulness, honesty, is it's a necessity. And I tell people, yeah, I can honestly say that I've never lied in a negotiation. And that's not me bragging about how moral I am. It's just a poor strategic <laughs> approach. The risks yeah. are just far too great. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I always tell people it's easy to be moral when there's, you know, when there's no pressure, <laughs> when when there aren't temptations. But you have to remember the the downside of being immoral when there are pressures, because those are the situations where you might, you know, I tell my students, I, you might have stayed up late last night, you didn't have time to study because your kid was sick, or you, there was something else that you had to do. Don't give in to that temptation to cheat. Because if you get caught, the downsides are so much greater than you missing those points on that one test. Exactly. Whatever bad thing is going to happen because you didn't study is not nearly as bad as the bad thing that's going to happen <laughs> if you get caught for cheating. And it's so hard to recover from that bad thing. So, yeah, it's just it's hopefully something people don't have to learn the hard way. But those who have learned it the hard way will tell you uh, it's not worth it. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, fantastic. This has been really, really helpful. Thank you so much for this. If I did a solo episode on this, I don't think people would have been satisfied with my my advice. I would have said, if you made a, a moral mistake, I, you have to move, change your name. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. yeah, we appreciate you coming on. And But before we go, can you uh, tell the listeners about any exciting projects or anything you're working on or anything you want to promote? I, I would, actually. I have just recently... I'm interested in perception. And one of the things that I'm interested in is perceptions of women leaders. And I have published some research recently on how people, how women and women in business are perceived when they cry at work. And so that you can, if you come to the Graduate School of Management at UC Davis, our website, there's lots of links to that research and to interviews I've done. And it's some of the only, I believe, the only field research ever done on how people perceive women who cry at work. And I think it's it's a very interesting, very topical thing. We've got a lot of women who have entered the presidential race in the U.S. We've got a lot of women leaders around the world and in business. And I think the expression of emotion is is a whole nother aspect of perception that uh, we could talk about on another podcast if you want, but is something I'm very interested in. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I'm so excited about this because 
we have uh, the newest podcast under the American Negotiation Institute is Ask with Confidence uh, with our chief operating officer, Catherine Kanapke. And so she uh, focuses on gender dynamics in negotiations and conflict. So maybe we could get you on that show. I think that would be great. Sure. And perfect. Good stuff. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was phenomenal. Uh, let, let me know if you need anything else. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please leave a review and subscribe and tell your friends. Our goal is to help as many people as possible. And when you leave reviews, it makes it easier for people to find us in the searches. Thanks again for being a listener. I'll catch you in the next one.